Welcome to the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I'm Kyla Daw, and I'm glad you decided to join us on today's episode of the show that is shaping how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent. Rather than advice from experts, our listeners want to hear the insights and ideas from those who, just like them, are on the front lines every day, building meaningful relationships that translate into meaningful support for causes that they and their donors care about. Every week, we invite our guests to have a real conversation about what it means to be a fundraising professional. We're after a greater understanding of what it means to be one of the sector's critically important yet least understood roles, while giving honest answers to our profession's most difficult questions. Thank you for joining us in this episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. Here's your host, author, fundraiser, and master trainer, Jason Lewis. Hi, podcast listeners. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. Before I introduce today's guest, I would like to thank our sponsor, QVAC. There's a big difference between a solution that measures a fundraiser's performance and a solution that helps fundraisers perform. QBAC helps fundraisers to excel at their most critical tasks, developing deep personal relationships with prospects and cultivating them into lifelong donors. Give your fundraisers a better qualified portfolio, one that considers more than just capacity and simple scoring. Your fundraisers will also get insights into the hearts, minds, and connections of their prospects. Fundraisers have a tough job. Help them close bigger gifts in less time by going to www.qback.com to schedule a free demo. Colleagues, is your organization thinking about a capital campaign, hiring a new development officer, or taking your fundraising efforts to another level? How about inviting myself and another member of Responsive's consulting team to facilitate a two-day sense-making experience for your team? Our two-day sense-making retreats are custom-designed to ensure that your entire team is making sense of what's most working in your favor and what's getting in your way. If this sounds like something you might be interested in, click the simple form in the show notes and we'll be happy to arrange an introductory call. Hi, Rebecca and Tyrone. I am delighted to have two of you on my podcast today. Uh, delighted to have you both here. And we're sort of, uh, we're going to sort of take it off grid and, and have a different sort of format. Usually we ask our guests to come on here with a big idea or bold opinion. Uh, we're not going to have to do that today because you have both written very, uh, for speaking for me, both personally and professionally, you've both written wonderful books um, that have influenced those are the big ideas or bold opinions that uh, that you've put out in the world, and I'm grateful for the um, for the influence that that has uh, been for me in my own professional development and my thinking through the work that we do as fundraisers. Uh, before we dive into just this conversation, for, for my listeners' sake, we're going to really just let these two wonderful authors uh, get to know each other and have some dialogue about the um, the ideas that they both put in their books. Um, we're going to have that. Let just let the two of them sort of go back and forth. But before we do that, let's start with you, Rebecca. How about you just tell us who you are? Well, thank you, Jason, and it's great to be here with you and Tyrone. Twenty years or so ago, I became a consultant, worked with lots of faith-based organizations. My feet were planted in that direction by my father's example, and I think that's kind of a common story among people who. Before fundraising was actually a career that you aspired to, um, you just kind of became this because of what you'd seen. And my father was in home mission work in Montana when I was a child, and I would go out with him when he would be meeting with donors. And I just saw people always say yes to my father when he would ask them for things to help with the ministry. And so I grew up just assuming that people were generous and that were excited about what God was doing in the world and wanted to be a part of it with their money. And so when I had the opportunity to become part of a small development shop, you know, I just thought, well, yeah, I mean, well, it was, you know, sort of a, a rude awakening to, to discover that not everybody was quite as receptive as those um, people who were saying yes to my father. But over the years, I have lived in the company of generous people and there is no better place to live than in that company these are the kindest happiest most wonderful people and so it's it's just really been a good life a pivot moment in my life though came um, right before I wrote um, Growing Givers Hearts with Tom Jevons and and that the impetus for it was a scandal 
a fundraising scandal here in Pennsylvania called the New Era um, scandal, I guess, New Era Foundation. A whole bunch of charities, first in Philadelphia and then across the faith-based um, community, particularly here in Pennsylvania, but really all across the country. Well, it turned out to be a Ponzi scheme. And when Tom and I first met and were talking, we were saying, why would so many really devout religious people be so susceptible to this scheme? And we realized that they didn't trust the generosity of the people with whom they were working. They were so consumed with meeting their goals. And often their goals were kind of out of the reach of their constituents. So instead of really being um, true to their constituents, they went after this get rich scheme. Well, I will go on and on about that. But that was what led us to write um, Growing Givers Hearts, Treating Fundraising as Ministry, because we said there's got to be a different way. There has to be a way that really puts donors' hearts front and center. And so that's what really set the trajectory for the whole rest of my career. I've preached basically one sermon for 22 years now, and I'll probably be preaching it as long as I can talk. So I'm so glad to be here today to have another opportunity to preach that and to talk with Tyrone about his beautiful book, which really picks up on so many of the themes. Yeah, yeah. Tyrone, Tyrone tell us who you are. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Jason. It's such an honor to be here with you and Rebecca. Um, I'm Tyrone McKinley Freeman, and I like to describe myself as the son, grandson, nephew, and cousin of Black Baptist preachers and first ladies. And so I, I grew up in a, a, a tradition of generosity, uh, a congregational community uh, that was oriented towards helping others and being of service to others. Um, and so that really frames my understanding of philanthropy um, and and really informed my career. Um, so I'm a professional fundraiser, uh, worked for a series of organizations in the Midwest, uh, youth and family social services, community economic development, um, also higher education. And so I, I've worked in kind of the small one-person shop, uh, community-based one-person shop, but then also in a Big Ten higher education machine with 200 people who are, who are dedicated to fundraising. And so um, had those range of experiences. I also was privileged to be the associate director of the fundraising school for several years. And there got to be able to be involved in developing curriculum and teaching and interacting with fundraising professionals around the world, which was really um, a powerful experience for me. Um, and, and now currently I'm an associate professor of philanthropic studies at the Indiana University Lilly Family School of Philanthropy. Um, and, and where I, I I study philanthropy, I teach, I engage in research and service and, and write for the field and, and work on different projects. Uh, again, advancing a broader understanding of philanthropy as not something that belongs to uh, the, the ultra wealthy or the elite, but it's something that's part of our common collective human heritage. Um, and so while for me, that is greatly informed by a deep religious tradition, um, but so I also write about um, some of those traditions and my book, Madam C.J. Walker's Gospel of Giving Black Women's Philanthropy During Jim Crow was my attempt to kind of address these issues of defining philanthropy, understanding what a philanthropist looks like, um, and, and looking at uh, giving uh, through a different historical lens than we're typically given. And so uh, through the African-American tradition and specifically through uh, the, the innovations of Black women. Uh, religious black women, uh, in the case of Madam Walker's story. And so that's what, how I come to this conversation and, um, very excited again to be here and was, was touched very early by, by Tom and Rebecca's book. And so I'm, I'm really excited to be here in her presence, uh, because that, that book came along right as I was entering the fundraising profession and, and meant something very, very special to me. Thank you. Yeah. So Tyrone, let's start with you and, and your comment before we hit the record button. You know, one of the things you said about Rebecca's book is that, um, is that it gave you permission. There was an, there was a, that, that was a key word. I always listen to, you know, distinctive words. I think there's always powerful mm -hmm. language, you know, listening to language. And as, as a host, you, that's one of the things I've gotten good at doing here on the podcast. Sure. And yeah. you use the word permission and you also suggested that early in your career, um, you were looking for something that would sort of give you permission to think differently about fundraising. 
and and the 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 reason I think that's particularly relevant is because I think we all know that a lot of us uh, we're encountering sort of this um sort of add my own commentary here before we start this official conversation between the two of you. I think that's what younger fundraisers and perhaps a lot of fundraisers, maybe there's no age sort of restrictions to this. Um, they're looking for permission to sort of think about this differently. Mm. What, what was that? What was that? That's perhaps Rebecca's book did for you. And perhaps also what was it you were looking for Tyrone? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think, um, coming across that book, um, when I did again, just, just two or three years in, into the field and uh-huh. trying to get my bearings. So, you know, I, I was absorbing everything. I, I went to the professional association monthly meetings and the national conferences. I was buying every book that was coming out and, and trying and meeting people and networking and trying to develop mentoring relationships. Um, taking in what it means to be a fundraiser and how do you do this work and, and, uh, getting, you know, good advice and meeting, meeting wonderful people. But there was something and I couldn't articulate it then. There was something about what I was being taught, uh, advised, recommended that wasn't quite sitting well with me. Um, and, but it just kind of just, it just, there was something that I, I, I couldn't quite connect with. And, and it would, it would curve in little ways and just this whole notion of, of, of courting people to a certain point and then kind of going in and, and language about low hanging fruits and targets and markets and all these kinds of things. I just, I'm just not sure about that, right? <laughs> Is that what I'm doing? Is that what's going on here? And then comes along this book that says, hey, treating fundraising as ministry. Like what? <laughs> um, and, and maybe it's it maybe calling and, and vocation are, are different contexts for thinking about this. And and the idea that, and certainly in the context that it's written for the Christian tradition, that the fundraiser can actively be a part of the the giver's faith and their development and help draw out or help them develop that that generosity as part of their worship part of their growth in the field as 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 total humans right um so there was something that resonated and perhaps it was my upbringing i mean i i, I never had professionally raised money for religious organizations but the donors i was interacting with right very often had religious backgrounds and interests that drove them uh, to that. And, and so it just, it, it was speaking to me in those early days, you know, I, I remember clearly there was a donor who I was working with who um, was making a gift and, and I, we had gotten everything executed and ready to go. And the first thing I wanted to do was celebrate it. And how could we recognize it and get it out there and, and all this stuff. And they're like, no, we want to be anonymous. I'm like, yeah, what? right. <laughs> Like, wait, no, no, I have to, we have to kind of promote this to teach other people to, to do this and, and to show your example. They're like, no, we're, we're not, we're not interested in that. We just, just take the gift and do what you're supposed to do. And I didn't know what to do with that. Right. Cause everything else is all about, you know, celebrate and put, you know, so, you know, and I, and since then I've often wondered, have fundraisers killed anonymous giving or <laughs> where, where does it stand? Right. Um, but that goes back to there, there's biblical teachings. There are religious teachings about giving in secret and, and not letting one hand knowing what the other hand is doing and things like that. And so here's Rebecca's book, giving voice to that saying, okay, there is someone speaking to that discomfort. That's part of this, these daily experiences I'm having. And how do I think about this more broadly? Um, and, and what's happening Happening or what could happen beyond the transaction if I oriented myself differently towards this work and towards the people with whom I'm interacting. Rebecca, if I think back on the conversations that I've had, we've had here on the podcast, it's that angst. I, I repeatedly use the word angst. In fact, you may, in our conversations, Rebecca, you and I may have had, um, I may have used that word angst. And that's kind of just the word I assign. Forgive me if it's the wrong word, but that's kind of the word that I sort of assign to, to anyone who sort of describes that they're sort of their, their angst. There, there's a sort of stirring for something more meaningful in their work. And perhaps it's somebody like Tyrone, who's, you know, three years in, has that been sort of the response is, is, is that been the consistent response to your book? Um, as you've been sort of, you said, you said a few minutes ago that you've been sort of preaching the same sermon for, for two decades now. Um, is, is that the person that you're generally speaking to is somebody who's maybe three years in, who's got some angst and some stirring about maybe this ain't right. And they want to get it right. Absolutely. It's 
that's been one one of the most interesting and probably rewarding parts of of having the book out there and having the opportunity then to talk about it over and over and over again um, is just to see how something that really meant a lot to me at a critical point, as I said, having gone through that new era scandal and having to go back to donors and tell them that we'd lost their money. And I mean, that that was just a, a horrible experience. And to really look at kind of my own motivations and and how had I gotten caught up in that and um to to listen to other fundraisers who, who too maybe not that sort of thing but had been pushed to to push donors too hard or to even use methods that to them to them felt a little questionable in maybe twisting arms a little too hard or that sort of thing. And to finally have someone say, there's another way, there's another way. And particularly if we're working with people with whom we share faith and that we're, we're really talking about bigger goals here than just raising the money. And so it, 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 it started out that way and it continues to be that way. I don't get these messages as often as I used to, but I would say at least once a month, I'll hear from somebody who will say, I just found your book and I found you on LinkedIn and I just want to let you know, this is what I was looking for. And you're like, oh man, you know, thank you, Jesus, <laughs> you know, for, for um, you know, just giving this opportunity to Tom and me probably also thank you Lily and Downman because they funded the project but you know it was it was really um just one of those moments that then shaped my life and I think has helped shape some other careers which is really wonderful but I'll say more about that later because I wish I could say it had transformed everything uh-huh. but I'll I'll come back to that later I think maybe not. But. Yeah. So Rebecca, you've just picked up Tyrone's book recently. We've a lot of us have. Uh-huh. Uh, you pick you, Tyrone. You pop that was published. Give us a date on that, real quick. Was a uh, that was in October of twenty twenty. The book came right, out. right. So a lot of us have been picking it up over the last last eighteen twenty four months and um and and reading it. And and Rebecca, you've had an opportunity to read uh, Tyrone's book. And um, what'd you think? Well. One, I love stories, and so it was. It, Tyrone is a wonderful writer, and told Madam C.J. Walker's story so beautifully. So you you get caught up in the story, mm-hmm. but then there's just so much more going on. And and I've read it actually three times now because I think the wow. first time I kind of read it read it as a story, and then I went back and and you know different things jumped out at me. Um, I think as a fundraiser, it was Tyrone gave such because it's a whole book. You had the time to really let us inside a significant donor's mind, her motivation, what was going on in her life, how her giving fit with her passions, how her giving fit with her um, company. You know all of these different pieces, how it fit with her faith. And as a fundraiser, I've had a chance to hear pieces of those kind of stories from donors, but seldom do we have the opportunity to go into that depth with a donor. And so it was just fascinating. And and different places I go, oh, okay, I've done that. And look how she responded. Or... I've thought that about certain categories of prospects. Shame on me. Shame mm. on all of us. Um, and then just so many, so many pieces in it as I kept going back to it again. But just as a story, it's fantastic. So, and, and I'm, I think we need to tell more stories of people whose stories don't get told. We hear the big, the big donor stories, um, but 
there are you I think in one place you maybe it's me who says this, but um <laughs> I call them donors who fly under the radar. Sort of the mm. mid-level donor. And and yes. at one place you talk about how she really didn't qualify as the major, major, yes. major donor. She wasn't the small donor. Yes. So where is that middle donor? And I think that middle donor mm. is the donor that is most overlooked. And we really are doing a terrible disservice to a whole bunch of people who feel called and are passionate about a lot of things, but we're so busy either looking up at the sky, hoping that um, somebody drops six or 216 million. Is that what boys and girls club just got? Um, Mm. Yeah. Right. Right. Or sending out our direct mail appeal, hoping that we pull in a whole bunch of little gifts. Where the where that good solid middle is sitting there, and most of them don't raise their hand then. But nowadays mm. they are like Madam Walker. They're out there finding what they want to give to, because that's what I loved about her story too. She didn't wait. Now some yeah. people came to her, and there's some fun stories in there about that. But she didn't wait. She knew what she was up to. And she was out there either creating the opportunities or finding the causes. And I thought, well, that's a, that's a good lesson. So I could go on and on about the book. But there's just so many, so many things that I highlighted and wrote in the margin. And, T- Tyrone, and, thank you. T- yeah. Tyrone, I was writing the other day. I was working on my uh, the current project that I'm currently working on, and I'm reflecting on sort of where the conversation might emerge from here. And I think you, I know you both can appreciate this. Um, and 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 Rebecca, you're exactly right. Uh, Tyrone does reference that particular section, that sort of that what I call the messy middle of of, of most of our fundraising operations, where we there's a certain level of predictability and efficiency that is that we can't find with that particular donor category because it's not particularly efficient and they, they don't behave like highly efficient you know automatons or something um but the other day i was writing about this tyrone and, and you're in academia where does fundraise is part of that angst that you were sort of looking for and you're right there in the thick of this and it seems like part of the case you were making in the book is where do we make room for discipleship? The other day I was, I wanted to use the word discipleship and I thought, oh no, I can't do that because this is a, you know, this isn't a religious audience. And I think I ended ended up putting like, like the word coach in there. Like it it felt cheap, right? But we know, but but don't we, the three of us know exactly what we're talking about. And I, isn't, is that part of what you're talking about, Tyrone, is that, that fundraisers are sort of grasping for, an opportunity to sort of disciple and you can't say that at a you know an average AFP breakout session, right? <laughs> right? <laughs> right. Yeah, I guess right. You're you're right. I guess uh we, we always say fundraising is about relationships. What does that actually mean? Right. And Rebecca's yeah. book lays out a pathway for what that could mean, right? And um and but but some of that runs up against the, the conventional wisdom, the, the quote unquote best practices. Um and and so I, you know what I was trying to articulate in the book was that someone who as as generous as Walker, um, overlooked by historians of philanthropy, overlooked by our field, um, not as a consequential giver because she didn't fit these categories. Yeah, She's not right. up there with Carnegie and Rockefeller, who are contemporaries of hers. But she's also she's not she's she's doing much more than the the typical person could of the era. Um, and, and so she gets lost in there because we, we go to the, the, the number of zeros on the check and we go to the well-known folks, which, again, given our history, tend to be wealthy white men. Um, and even when we do look towards the, the wealthy white women, it's usually because they're connected to the wealthy white men. Right. Um, so we even don't even fully honor them in, in their full context for giving. And so this was to say, hey, that, that giving takes place in many different uh, spaces and contexts and cultures. And here is a woman who represents a very important 
uh, culture of giving that's not just consequential for her and the communities that she invested in, but it's consequential to our American story because the, the fight against Jim Crow is part of this traditions of giving goal um, and, and, and focus and motivation. And so a woman like Madam Walker, who's this early 20th century entrepreneur who comes out of the African Methodist Episcopal Church um, and very much invested in the, the fight for liberation, uh, very much invested in women's empowerment, very much invested in her own church communities, right, gives us another way of thinking about who's generous, um, who gives, how do they do it, um, because it's not, it was, money was important for her, but it's not the only thing. And so, um, you know, thinking about how do you engage people like Walker, uh, who may not uh, come up automatically in the, the list that your wealth engine the search pro- product might give you, right? But who's right there on the front lines in the mix, being driven by faith in her instance, uh, but also being driven by her lived experience as a Black woman, right, uh, who's suffering from the very oppression she's trying to upend. And so now there's a lot of talk about this, right, in the field. And the racial reckoning of the pandemic has, has attuned the field much more to this. And so we see women getting much more attention. We see women of color getting much more attention. We see people of color and Black-led nonprofits and other, you know, indigenous communities, right, being given focus finally. Um, but, and, and they're also, they're raising up what the, the effect of these fundraising practices have been for them on their organizations, on their communities. Um, and so it's a big moment to, to listen and to try to understand that, but then also to, to, to try to correct and, and overcome those practices that have led to that. And again, I, I think Rebecca's book points us in the direction of some ways of thinking about what kinds of practices might lead to healing or, or to a different, a broader view of what's actually happening when we sit down with people um, and, and present opportunities to give. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what I, I really love about her story and Madam Walker's story and the time frame in which she was living is how subversive giving was. It was pushing back against the realities and saying you're not going to you're not going to do us in i mean there we have power and mm-hmm. and i think for a lot of women that's a it, well i i shouldn't say women of my age um and and earlier it, to to recognize that power one isn't a bad word, power is a good thing, and that money is power, and it doesn't have to be a lot of power, I mean a lot of money, to be powerful. It, and that's where the idea of women working together or giving together, which is a big part of her story, which I love, you know, I did not know about those sorts of um do you use I hate to use the word fraternal um, because no, yeah. Masculine. Okay. no, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know that um, that when you put together your money, it can really be powerful, <laughs> and you can do some really amazing things in your community, and that's a big piece of that story. And I I think that's a very relevant story for people today who are feeling kind of powerless. Yeah, and saying, "Well, what can I do? You know, I don't have a lot of money, and I don't have a lot of power." And you go, "Well, look around. Who who shares your ideas? Who cares about the same causes? Um, join forces yeah. and give together. And that's yeah. you know what giving circles do. But it, it isn't just that. And I think, in a sense, I wish that's what every congregation was." Because I always talk about congregations as sort of another form of giving circle, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. kind of bigger. But there's a lot of little churches out there. Every time we pass that plate or wipe our card or however we choose to give these days, we're giving together. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I wish we were more intentional about thinking about what are we trying to accomplish um, in yeah. the way that we're giving yeah. together. Did, um, and so some of the stories and, con- and conversations would be helpful. 
Yeah, those were so important themes. I mean, I just, you know, your book talked about, you know, abundance versus scarcity, right? That's a particular orientation here. And it talked about cooperation instead of competition. And and we see these things in Walker's life. You're right. She participated in many different networks of women where they're pooling resources and in ways that, you know, would be familiar to members of giving circles today. And and the idea that we can do more together than we can separately. Um and and how that again that that honors everyone's opportunity to participate and to contribute, right? That we all can do something. And, and, and that's one of the things that I thought was so powerful about her story in particular is that although she goes on to become this very wealthy, this millionaire person at the, at the height of Jim Crow, her giving didn't start then. It, it started when she was, the, she was the widow. She was the poor orphaned widow uh, who began giving in her early 20s. And I think that gives us this accessible model of generosity that's saying, hey, I can, somebody needs something that I have. And and for her, in the context of a church community, right, this church, church provided a pathway and an invitation for her to begin giving uh, to help others who were similarly situated to her. Um, and so this is, you know, so later when she says that, you know, the Lord loves a cheerful giver, invoking Second Corinthians, right? And and we, we think deeper into that scripture, we know just before that, Paul's writing about the, the, the church in Macedonia and how the, the, the greatest generosity came from those from great poverty and who are suffering great trials, right? That's what leads us to the statement of about the Lord loves a cheerful giver. So, so I think there's something there about the everyday giver doing what they can with what they have um, uh, to, to help others uh, to express their own humanity and dignity in these broader circumstances uh, and to try to keep pushing for liberation in, in the case of Madam Walker. And so I think that this, again, these wonderful intersections between our work but in, and in history and speaking to this moment, I think you're right. The explosion in giving circles speaks to this. Um, and, and again, the ways in which people are, are stepping up and claiming generosity uh, through social media and other spaces that we hadn't quite seen before, they don't fit this limited definition that it's only the billionaires and, and the millionaires who, who do this. Yeah, yeah. So if, uh, Tyrone, I'm interested to know, and I'm interested in your thoughts, Rebecca, as well. Um, if I, the fundraiser at the beginning of the, you know, beginning of the 20th century, had read Rebecca's book and knocked on Madam, Madam C.J. Walker's door, would she have let me in? And, uh, what would her reaction have been? There wasn't a lot of, there wasn't a lot of fundraisers who had read. Even if they were really well trained and read all the right stuff, they, 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 that wasn't the thing. So, um, what would her reaction have been? I'm interested in what you, you both think her reaction might be. Would it have worked? Well, uh, you probably wouldn't have gotten past Freeman B. Ransom, her attorney, who was the one who, <laughs> yes, kind of uh, managed a lot of the the requests that she received, but. Um, I think there's there's something there. I, mean, I appreciate you, rep, you know, uh, reflecting upon that opening story from the book and her interactions with Washington. I think yes. um, what's in the, some of the lessons from that story, I think, are seeing donors, you know, on their own terms and not kind of in our own preconceived notions. And so just for the sake of the audience, just she's being solicited for a $300 gift. And, and, and in the process, after they're about to kind of execute it, uh, Booker T. Washington tries to upgrade her to ask right. her for more. And she, she receives that as an offense. Yes. And she kind of just really kind of lays him out in her response and kind of rebuking him for, for doing this and, and really saying to her that I'm, I'm not like the, the wealthy white men that you're interacting with and that you speak to in this way. I'm doing something different. I, I want to give you more, but right now I can't. So I need you to receive this, right? And accept what's happening here. And, and so I, and I think that that speaks to this moment where, um, many different communities are claiming their own traditions of giving and generosity. And as Rebecca said, and, I, and I've said this too, they're not waiting. They're not waiting for fundraisers to understand the importance of diversity, equity, and inclusion. They're not waiting for you to come to them. And we see evidence of this, the ways in which people use crowdfunding during the pandemic to get resources directly to individuals and to networks and to organizations that were doing things they felt were important, right? They're creating their own pathways, if you will, uh, if we're not providing them for them and and they have they have been before so so I always caution like that don't refer to in this case uh, 
communities of color as as new and emerging donors and kind of new on the the philanthropic landscape. No, they've been here. They they might be new to your organization because you've not been aware of them or not been engaging them. But but as I show you in my book, this history is hundreds of years old. So I think it's important. That's part of seeing them on their own terms, understanding them, and earning. One of my mentors always talk used to talk about earning the right to ask someone. Right, that you would develop the relationship to the point where you, um, you know, have, have developed that trust and that understanding of who they are and, and what they're trying to do, and, and how you might come along and offer an opportunity that helps to fulfill that in the context of the mission. So, I, I, those are the kind of some of the things that come to mind in thinking about that that question, uh, Jason. So let's let's shift let's shift uh, uh, take a little bit little different uh, direction, and this. Um this is actually a question, Tyrone, that you shared with me as it relates to Rebecca's thinking, and perhaps, it, perhaps Rebecca, if you were doing, a, if you were revisiting some of the the, the narrative in your book, um, Tyrone had asked the question. I think it's a very timely question um, as we're talking about spirituality. The idea that that we want to believe into the spirituality, the sensibility of abundance, but then we just constantly see all these reminders right now. And it seems like, you know, when you were writing this, when you were writing Growing Givers Hearts, for example, Rebecca, I don't think the internet was much around. I mean, it was there, right? It wasn't around much. Well, right? AOL, AOL dial-up. It's, 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 what is it? Is it 20 years old? It's 20 years old, right? Yeah, yeah. So it was I, – I remind my students periodically over at the college, I say something about the fact that when I – when I graduated from college 25 years ago, you know, that was, we had AOL, we had email, but we didn't have much internet. Um, And so the, the news cycle is constantly reminding us today that the world is falling apart, that inflation is what it is, that, you know, that everything's desperate, you know, we've got the stuff going on in the Ukraine, but to have, to use Tyrone's, your language, the idea of sort of having this sensibility and understanding that we believe in a God that, you know, a God of abundance and there's a lot out there and we know there's a lot out there. That's part of that new cycle too, is that we're constantly reminded how much is out there. Um, if we can get this right, what's your thoughts on that, Rebecca? Yeah, that's one of those odd paradoxes. On one hand, you know, we're crying our little eyes out because inflation is, is getting, is going up or whatever inflation does. Um, but meanwhile, we know that there are people who are just making money hand over fist. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's, and, and yet I, I just read an article today about how food banks are really struggling right now and more people are coming and, and it's costing them more. You know, so there, there's just all these strange sort of ideas coming at us. And, and it would be easy to kind of just throw up your hands and, Say well, you know, this is not the time to ask. But we know that um, fundraising is a lot about timing, and timing means you really have to know the people that you're talking to, and you really have to know how to listen to what they're telling you, so that and believe them. And I mean, I I'm certain that over the years I've had people give me sort of the socially acceptable response, you know, I just don't have any money right now. When they've told me that, I choose to believe them. And and I'll say, well, you know, I'm I understand. I know that there's some, you know, this has been a rough time. I'll be back. But in the meantime, can I continue to tell you and send you word of the good things that are happening because you gave in the past. And maybe I'm crazy, but I I choose to believe them. If we're two persons of faith talking to each other and they tell me they can't give right now, then I'll go on to the next person. So... But that can be hard to do if you're really under the a lot of pressure to meet really big goals. And but it it takes trust. It takes confidence in the people with whom you're working, um, and patience. And then hope that 
you have, as the fundraiser, hope that you have a CEO, an executive director, a president, whatever, and a board that is with you in this. And, and who says, yes, we would rather be patient than to push people too hard or maybe to take a gift that wouldn't be good for us from a source that wouldn't be good for us or would force us to compromise in ways that we don't want to. Um, so, you know, I think, I think fundraising gets really tricky in times like this, when we're hearing these sort of mixed messages coming from different directions. But we, but we know that generous people, when their heart is touched by a cause, will do some really amazing things. We'll be surprised by what will happen. And without us twisting their arms or without us resorting to some sort of mystical, you know, sort of best practice kind of things. If we if we truly want them to give in a way that is going to help them grow in their faith, that's going to be faith affirming to them, that will let them feel like they've done something really significant, then it'll happen. In the right time. I really believe that. And I've seen it over and over and over. But in the moment, it can be scary for the fundraiser. It can be scary. I don't know, Tyrone, if you. What do you think, Tyrone? You posed the question. What's your reaction to that? Um, no, I, I, um, I was, you know, I was thinking about it because you know I have a mix of students. So my undergraduate students are tend to be either the traditional college student or returning who are not quite in the sector yet, but making their way. My graduate students are firmly entrenched in the sector and, yeah. and are, you know returning professionals. And so in listening to them and how they manage the pandemic, for instance, and also just the research that we do, which is community based, and we're out interacting with others. You know, I, there was a turn, right? You know, Zoom calls became ways of cultivating and staying connected with people, and 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 some of my students were just really, you know, surprised at the openness of their donors to that because it was another point of connection. And they found themselves kind of just just talking and, and kind of um, making sure uh, each other was OK. It, that, some of the some of my students were surprised that their donors expressed concern for them as the person who was calling upon them and saying, well, you know, well, you're asking me all these questions. How are you doing? Right. And, and, and you know, do you need anything? So um, so I think that that notion of connectedness was something that that rose up that was important. And 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 and, and some and hearing from some managers um, and, and directors and those in leadership, giving those kinds of 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 directions, instructions, support to their frontline folks saying, hey, this is a time where we need to check in on people. We need to make sure everybody's okay. And we need to see, um, it may not be pressing towards campaign goals in this moment, but we're, we're making sure everybody's okay. I think those were kinds of moments that spoke to the possibilities that Rebecca book Rebecca's book outlines, right? <laughs> and so I think one of the questions is how do we hold on to that now that uh, whatever you know, I, I don't. I don't know if normal is the word, but if things are opening back up, right, and and we're 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 trying to turn the corner and and to resume whatever we're resuming, um, how do we hold on to those moments of connection that maybe spoke to something bigger um, in the midst of, of crisis? How do how do we hold on to that, and how does that inform practice going forward? Because the other thing, you know, Rebecca calls for for deep reflection as a part of this too. Right. So what, what, what's the reflection that we carry with us, um, uh, coming out of this? And, and how do we hold on to that notion of caring for our donors, um, in, in, in a much deeper way? Um, what did we learn, uh, from the pandemic that, that shows us what donor care could look like? Um, and also what, you know, as a part of this is, and ultimately this is about community care, right? Because we're not, just interacting with donors for the sake of doing that. We're interacting on behalf of a community, uh, a mission, right? And need, uh, right? So what have we learned both about community care and donor care that I think might speak to this practice that, that she's urging us to take up? Yeah, the, uh, that's exactly what I've been encouraging, particularly in my work with, um, I do a lot of work with theological schools and 
a number of the, I've heard a number of the development staff in the seminaries talking about how they, because they couldn't go out and see people, you know, they just spent their time talking to people on Zoom and, and <laughs> what wonderful conversations they had. And then I go, well, are you going to keep that up? And it was kind of like, oh, well, now I can go out and see people. Well, you can talk to people who you wouldn't drive to see in a given day. Um, and you can see, you can talk to a lot more people. It, and I think um, just like how faculty have learned that they can actually teach online and um, actually do a good job of teaching via Zoom or other platforms, I think development staff have learned that you can have some really marvelous conversations with people. Uh, and it, it requires a different kind of listening because it's, it's harder to read the person. Um, but I, I hope we don't let go of that learning, that it's another way. It, it's not either or. Well, of course, we want to get out there when we can. But there, there are good lessons that we can learn in anything that lets us deepen connections and relationships. We want to hold on to that and keep using what we've learned. And if, if I've gotten better at doing that, wow, keep it up. Let me uh, let me pose a question before we wrap up. We usually lose our listeners at about 50 minutes, so we've got about five minutes. But I'm interested – I'm first interested in your – some something you said a few minutes ago, Rebecca, and then I, I'd, I'd like Tyrone, you to – it's it's about the idea that Tyrone's book was so interesting to you, and it sounds like you read it a couple of times, in large part because it told the story. You know, we'd like to talk about storytelling, but one of the things it seems like we're guilty of, I know it's not seems, we're definitely guilty of in the fundraising community. When we talk about, we tell all these stories, and we're usually telling stories of old rich white guys who give away wealth. You know, there's how many books are there written about Carnegie, for example. And so in some ways, it seems like your interest in the book, Rebecca, comes from being this person who has spent, you know, committed your life to sort of getting really good at this fundraising thing. But also it seems to be sort of, it, it scratched a curious itch because it told a story of a donor that you've never known, you know, that because we don't write these stories. And then Tyrone sort of, if you could just sort of reflect on this as well, you basically wrote a story about a donor that hasn't gotten written because we don't write stories about, you know, black women, we write stories about rich white men. Um, is that what it did, Rebecca? Is that it sort of scratched an itch in your curiosity and you said, wow, this is, this really enlightens me of somebody's story. And I wished I would have read it, you know, 20 years ago. Was that part of it? Well, it also, well and it also made me wish that it was possible for a whole lot of other people to have their story. Yes. Told. Right. Um, and, and maybe not in that length of a book, right. um, but there, there are, I mean, I know so many people who, whose whole life, their greatest joy was to, to be able to give. And also I know a lot of them who like, um, Walker gave the gift of opportunity. And we didn't talk about that, but what an amazing thing it is to give opportunity to people. And I loved how she shaped her company and, and wouldn't give away product because that would have hurt the women who were selling the product. And, you know, she was protecting the opportunity that she had created for them so that they then too could flourish. And they could then begin to give because that was a big part of what they were all about. I love those songs that they sang about giving and, you know, and so, um, you know, to, to think about, well, who are these other people who in each of our circles, you know, I thought maybe each fundraiser once a year should write a story about um, or interview somebody and really get those stories out there. And I, Maybe they're kind of known in different pockets. I don't know. Um, you know, I know a bunch of stories. I've not written them. Right. But they're not as 
dramatic as as men and walkers, but there's still a lot you can learn from them. So thank you, thank you, thank you for doing that. And um, you know, I it made me think, oh, maybe I should write a story about this amazing woman who I met in Virginia last year. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Tyrone, some of the critique to carry that question a little further, to carry that question that I posed to to Rebecca and, and, and hand it to you, you know, Part of the critique, for example, with that we're, we're, we're regularly hearing in the fundraising community coming from sort of the community centered folks, it almost seems like it stirs up resentment, right? The resentment towards the donor. Mm-hmm. And, and so part of what I think you're doing with your book is you're telling a story about a donor that they're not used to hearing. It, I, I would totally expect that resentment. And if all they see is books about Carnegie on the, on the bookshelves, but in some ways you're sort of tempering that and you're saying, there are donors out there who don't necessarily look like me that have given in extraordinary ways and have a story that's worth telling. Was that part of the, was that part of the intent behind the book? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think about the book as a philanthropic biography yeah. um, and this idea of, because Walker, you know, Walker is already well known because of her achievements in beauty culture and because she's been called the first female self-made millionaire in America. So there's a lot of people already have this awareness. There was also a Netflix special about her, which put her in, into the imagination of many people who had heard of her. But the lesser known story is her philanthropy. And even the Netflix series didn't really engage that. And I've written about that too. But so so I wanted to say that, hey, when you take this, this well-known figure in many quarters, but you center philanthropy, this notion of giving, and use that as a lens to look at her. Not only do we get this whole new view of her as a person, we get this whole new understanding of of what giving is, what it can look like, and how it functions in everyday life. And and again, I come back to that accessibility that that you know none of us will ever be able to do what 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 the likes of, of Carnegie can you know had been in terms of the amount of money. Um, but but we could all do what Walker did because she started where she you know from from having little and then as she acquired more she gave more and she didn't limit herself to money the spirit of generosity kind of permeated her life and it was a reflection of the community that produced her right and part of what a lot of these these new voices in the space are saying is to honor these communities and understand what brings them to giving right what's giving to them what's their language what's their culture what's their understanding um, and and. and and so I think the, one of the things I wanted to do with the book was to give voice to that and say, hey, I want to help you understand this woman in a different way who you may have heard of before. But I also want you to see this broader community that produced her and to think about it in a broader way, that African-American traditions of giving are vital and a vibrant part of this American story. And even that leads to more stories. I'm, I'm very excited that I'm, I'm part of a project that just came out that is looking at African-American Islamic philanthropy. We tend to think about this as a Protestant Christian yeah. A phenomenon, yeah. but it has been deeply influenced by Islam. And so there's a new journal article, a journal issue, the Muslim Philanthropy Journal that just came out that I was privileged to write an introduction for. And th- this scholarship is noting how enslaved Muslims were practicing charity on slave plantations because charity is a pillar of Islam, right? right. And, and then they carry forward into the 21st century. So I think that, that those are more stories that we need to, to hear. We're not used to thinking about enslaved people. People as givers, as donors, uh, right? Uh, but this tradition is there, and, it, and it's this is the tradition that Walker's connected to uh, because her parents were enslaved, right? So, so I think it's this this point is very important. We've got to tell these different stories so that we again understand and come back to this notion of philanthropy as as a common collective human uh, practice rather than something that only belongs to a very small sliver. Yeah, and that was one of the questions that I asked Tyrone is. Um, through by telling stories about the way various people give, um, is that a way of breaking down some of the walls that we've built up between races, between you know newcomers to America versus people who've been here forever, um, are thinking about other parts of the world? Um, if we were really telling each other stories, could that help create bridges that we just can't seem to build and maintain 
mm. when we're always talking about our differences and and saying yes there are differences but look we have these we have this common i think really a god given innate spark of generosity in every person some people have a lot of you know they sort of have about a generous personality they were born with, or you might call it a spiritual gift. Um, but others can learn to be generous. And when, and when, for example, in Islam, when it's one of the pillars, you know, from a young age, that's a part of it. Judaism has it. And, you know, all the great religions of the world have generosity as a part of it. Well, how, how does that play out? And where does it show up in our stories? And how do our communities support it? And then how could we look for touch points where then we could begin to work together? I, I just, it was, as I was reading the book, I kept thinking, maybe this could be a, this could maybe be a hopeful, a hopeful thing that, mm-hmm. um, that through our shared stories of generosity, we could discover that we're not as different as we've been made to think we are. Yeah, yeah. Maybe ourselves or whoever has made us think that way. Because, you know, generosity is generosity. It's played out in different ways. But that drive to love neighbor in any way that we can Mm -hmm. is so strong. And who is my neighbor? Well, (laughs) it's anybody. Yeah. and. And if I hear their story and we can connect, that's wonderful. Yeah. You know, I just, I I hope so. You know, I just, I can just, thinking about the the response to to my book, um, you know, I I remember just just a couple of months ago, I was speaking at a conference and a, a Black woman who was in the audience stopped me and handed me a card. And when I opened up the card, there was this beautiful message where she was just telling me how the book affected her. And mm-hmm. so the thought that she, she she knew we would have an opportunity to be at this conference together, she took the time to write this. And then this this beautiful message about how hearing me speak about the book and then reading the book really touched her and enabled her to see herself in this field in a way she hadn't before meant a lot. And I've had another experience at, you know, speaking at a, at a conference and a white fundraiser came up to me afterwards and just said, I didn't know. I didn't know. know. I had never heard this before. And I really feel convicted. I need to think more broadly. I need to be more open. (laughs) I really didn't know. So I think there is something about our stories. That's how we connect. Um, And and so I I hope what you said, what you're suggesting is true. And, you know, these these anecdotes from 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 being able to be in community with with readers over the past two years seem to be pointing in that direction. I guess the questions and how do we sustain that? How do we maintain that? How do we grow that becomes uh, something to think about. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, we're going to, uh, uh, um, Tyrone and Rebecca, it has certainly been a pleasure. We lose our listeners at this particular point. So I'm going to let you, <laughs> I'm going to let you off the hook at this point, but I want to remind <laughs> all of our listeners, um, We'll start with Rebecca's book. Uh, for, for all my listeners, both of these authors, uh, both of our guests today have uh, influenced my thinking tremendously. Uh, first, Rebecca's book, uh, Rebecca and Tom's book, uh, Growing Givers Hearts, Treating Fundraising as Ministry, something that I read uh, 20, probably 22 years ago at the very beginning of my uh, fundraising career. Um, and sounds like something that greatly influenced Tyrone's thinking as well. And then uh, certainly a much more recent book, uh, Tyrone Freeman's book, Madam C.J. Walker's Gospel of Giving Black Women's Philanthropy. Um, we're going to put show, we're going to put links in the show notes so that anybody who's interested, uh, can certainly find that. It has certainly been a pleasure. Thank you for being our guest today to both of you. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you, Rebecca. Have you read the book that nonprofit leaders and fundraising professionals alike are calling a must read? In this pocket manifesto for today's fundraising professional, Jason deconstructs why many of us find ourselves working for organizations where we cannot accomplish our goals. These same organizations are notorious for rapid turnover and high donor attrition. 
To avoid this all-too-familiar path, Jason offers direction from those who want to be recognized and admired for their work. The war for fundraising talent challenges our ingrained beliefs and assumptions about how effective fundraising really works, and it questions the prevailing wisdom hiring decisions and donor behavior. Published by Gatekeepers Press, The War for Fundraising Talent is now available on Amazon and other major retailers. We want to thank you for listening to today's episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show and hope you will come back for next week's interview, where we will discuss with those on the front line who are defining what it means to be a fundraising professional. If you'd like to be a guest on the Fundraising Talent Podcast, visit our Facebook page or email Jason at jason at lewisfundraising.com. In your email, be sure to tell us about where you work and why you believe you would be a great addition to the upcoming lineup. Thank you again for joining us today, and we look forward to you being a part of the continuing conversation as we shape how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent.